take your Bibles, join me in Isaiah chapter 55. Last, last week we looked at uh, the first five verses. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. That glorious invitation of the Lord for, uh, for his provision to be granted freely to his people. A passage like this would create longing in the hearts of the people of Israel because they knew as they read these verses that, you know, we have to actually work really hard just to survive. It's not freely given. That ideal condition that was alluded to Physically is actually a picture of what God intends to do for us spiritually as well. We talked about all that last week, that we are to find our satisfaction, our peace, our shalom in him. Today we're continuing in the same passage, Isaiah chapter 55. And we'll see that God wants us to be changed Come as you are, but don't stay that way. God wants you to be changed. He wants us to know him, to understand him with with all the capacity that we can. As we look in the passage, we'll see that that we're not going to be able to fully understand him. That's actually a good thing. But a big idea this morning is God wants us to surrender ourselves to his higher way. It's difficult for us to do because we have in our own hearts how we want things to work. And as we'll see, God's ways and our ways, they're just not even, they're not even playing the same game. So just follow along with me if you would as we read from the text of scripture, Isaiah chapter 55, verses six through nine. Let us hear from the word of the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Would you pray with me? Lord, thousands of years ago, you led Isaiah the prophet to write these very words. And as hope-filling and as important and relevant as they were to Isaiah and to his original audience. Uh, Lord, this side of Bethlehem, this side of the cross, these words still ring true and give us hope. Build in us anticipation of when the Messiah will indeed return. So Lord, please overshadow me as I preach this morning. 
that my thoughts and words would be exactly what you want me to think and say. Overshadow us as your people this morning that as we interact with the word this morning that it would not be merely an intellectual exercise but that you would touch our souls, that you would change our hearts, change our minds, change our direction as needed so that we might worship you, might love you, and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse six starts out with a very direct and simple command. Seek the Lord while he may be found. My friends, the good news is that the Lord is available. That he wants to be found by his people. God does not hide. God has been known to mankind from the very beginning. Genesis records the face-to-face relationship that God had with Adam. Can you imagine? Being the only person, some of you are kind of introverts, and you're like, that sounds great. Uh, being the only person and having all these animals and the only other intellectual being to talk to is God himself. I don't think Adam was in awe as he should have been. <laughs> it was just his normal. He talked to God. Adam did not have did not need to have faith regarding the existence of God. Because he saw him, spoke to him. The whole concept of faith revolves around believing something to be true, though unseen. But Adam saw God. Now Adam still had to believe the promise of God that his sin would be forgiven by that one future sacrifice. Salvation has always been a gift of grace provided through faith. So even Adam had to believe. If Adam is is in glory in heaven today, it's because he believed the promises of God. Salvation has always been through faith, never through works. We see in today's passage that the Lord is available. He did not hide from the first man, Adam. And ever since Adam, the knowledge of God has been available for every generation, but not all have believed. The knowledge of God was available through oral histories, through written documents. And if there was a branch that failed to tell the next generation about God that next generation still had knowledge of God, didn't they? Because creation is declaring that there is a God, that he's great and he's powerful. That's Psalm 19. The knowledge of God has always been available. So the command to know God has always been a legitimate command. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near, verse 6. The command of this verse that implies that there will come a time when he may not be found. It's right there, isn't it? Call on him while he may be found, while he is near. Unbeliever, if the Lord is calling you today to believe, respond in faith. 
respond in obedience. He may stop calling. Surely God would never give up on someone, you may say. And that sounds like a reasonable proposition, right? I mean, isn't that what mankind would think? If there is a God and he's all-powerful and all-knowing and he loves people, surely he would never give up on people. It's a good thing that we're not left to our imagination as to what God would think or do. We have his revealed word. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 makes clear that, the universe, that there is a universal knowledge that, uh, of God, that, that he has made himself known, and that those who persist in rejecting that knowledge, those who insist on defying God through their lives, they will be left to their own devices. Here's, I'm going to read just a few verses from Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God, what is wrath? That's his eternal righteous anger. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Just looking around at creation is evidence that there is a God and those who persist in denying that knowledge. God says just in a few verses later, that he gives them up. In fact, there are three times in Romans chapter 1 that the scripture says God gave them up. Here's Romans 1, 24, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Two verses later. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Two more verses later. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. We're living that in our world today, aren't we? Our culture, more and more, it's not, it's not our entire culture, and praise the Lord for that, but our culture more and more is rejecting truths of God, and God is letting them. Those who persist in rejecting God's offer of salvation, there will come a time when he will not be found. So the cry of verse 6 is, seek the Lord while he may be found. He is available. Seek him. Secondly, verse 7, turn to God. Here's what the text says. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There is a completely consistent pattern in Scripture that is uh, shown, demonstrated in this passage. All throughout Scripture, people are not asked to believe in God, they are commanded. 
In Acts chapter 26, uh, we see Paul in front of uh, Festus the governor and Agrippa the king. He is given an opportunity to plead his case to them. And in that chapter, not once do we see Paul asking Festus or Agrippa to choose Jesus. He doesn't ask them to believe in God. He does ask them to listen, to please listen to my voice. But in all of that extended speech recorded in Acts chapter 26, there are sprinkled commands everywhere. Repent. Believe. But he doesn't ask. The closest example I could find of someone asking, and you may be familiar with this one, is Joshua 24, 15. You probably know this verse. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That really does sound like someone asking, doesn't it? But the context reveals something else. Here's the previous verse. So I'll read verses 14 and 15 of Joshua 24, last chapter of Joshua. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua commands the people to fear the Lord, serve the Lord, put away the gods of the area, and serve the Lord. All that in verse 14. And in the following verses, if you continue reading in the chapter, uh, Joshua commands uh, the people multiple times to, uh, to choose the Lord, to serve the Lord, and the people respond multiple times in allegiance to God. So this, uh, this is not just, uh, this is not like a letter written to the people. This is an interaction that the leader of Israel is having with the masses. And their response in mass is every time, we will serve God. It's an allegiance to God. So this seeming option that, that, uh, that, that seems to be there in, in verse 15, choose you this day whom you will serve, is more of a rhetorical statement rather than an actual offer because they've been commanded, serve the Lord. I'm not gonna take us through every example in scripture. That was just to Acts 26 and the last chapter of Joshua. But you will see this all the time. If it looks like it's a, a question, will you serve the Lord? Look at the context, because there are commands. Isaiah's wording in our passage is direct commands. Turn to the Lord, forsake sin. This is a consistent pattern through Scripture. You might ask, isn't it rude to just tell people what to do? Well, maybe kind of depends on the context and how you say it and what you're saying. It really depends on what your authority is. I have a neighbor just up the hill from our house, uh, and they had their Christmas trees up, decorated, and lit 
by November 1st. Now some of you are like, yes, and some of you are like, ew. Shortly after the outside lights came on. Now I could, if I were super rude, go to them and say, knock it off, no Christmas before Thanksgiving. That would be rude because I hold zero authority to make that call. Also, it would be illegitimate because I like the lights. I think it looks great. Um, It wouldn't be genuine. Isaiah's authority to command belief and repentance is rooted not in his person, even though he is a prophet of God. His authority to command the people is rooted in Scripture itself. As I stand before you today, I possess that same authority because I'm using scripture. It's not me. Isaiah is giving them commands because it's God's word through him to them. And when you use the word of God, you have that same authority. Because all of scripture is breathed out by God himself. Because that's true, because the word of God is is God's word, it authorizes us when we're using it in its context correctly, okay? People will take and twist commands and try to force that on others. That's not what I'm talking about. You know that. We are authorized to make these commands as well. Seek the Lord while he may be found. I'm not sure that I've done a good job of commanding people to believe. Actually, I should reword that. I'm sure I have not done a good job of commanding people to believe. I'm afraid all too often I have backpedaled in my attempt to be a witness, to evangelize, that I stop short because I don't want to create an uncomfortable situation. I'm not suggesting that we become belligerent and, I mean, you can command people to believe without being a jerk about it, okay? But if we do not command faith and repentance, we are out of alignment with Scripture. Because Scripture commands it. Perhaps our evangelistic efforts fall short because we are misaligned. Still working through that. So let's look at the commands. In verses six through seven, there are four distinct imperatives. Seek the Lord, call on the Lord, forsake wicked activities and unrighteous thoughts, and number four, return to the Lord. All of these commands have a variety of things in common, but one specific one I want to look at is that all of these commands require a humility and submission to God on part of the one who's obeying. To seek the Lord or call on him is to recognize your own inability. That's humbling. It's hard to ask for help, isn't it? Self-sufficiency is viewed as a very lofty virtue in our society. 
But God wants us to understand that we are fully reliant on him. Yes, we work hard, okay? Relying on God is not a call to sit and do nothing. We work hard, but we recognize that our work is enabled by him. That the fruit of our labor is given by him. He wants us to understand that, that we are fully dependent on him. To seek the Lord, to call upon the Lord, is to humble yourself to recognize that you just can't do it on your own. Those are the first two commands. The third command, to forsake your sinful actions and thoughts. Abandoning our sins also requires humility. We like to sin. It's easier than not sinning. Sometimes it's just flat out fun. We like to sin. Now if you think about it, there are some sins that we do genuinely abhor and we don't do those sins. But if we really hated sin the way God hates sin, then we wouldn't sin. Now, you and I both know that on this side of seeing Jesus face to face, we're not going to be perfect at not sinning. But if we hated sin like he does, we would certainly do it less. The cleansing work that the Father wants to have take place in us is not just about the big sins, but every thought every action, every word, every desire and motive, that all of who we are would be conformed to him. This confessing our sin and turning from sin is an act of humility as well. The fourth command, let him return to the Lord. Turning away from sin and turning toward the Lord always go hand in hand together in Scripture. Truly, you cannot do one without the other. So many people give intent to live for God, but they don't want to give up their sin. By the way, that doesn't work. Just as you cannot go north and south at the same time, you cannot turn toward the Lord without turning from your sin. And verse 7 ends with the result of this seeking and calling and forsaking and returning. It says that the Lord will have compassion on him and will abundantly pardon Sometimes in our interpersonal relationships, we are afraid to confess our guilt to someone because we're afraid they'll use it against us. That's not how God operates. Nor is it how any of God's people should operate. When God forgives, he does so permanently. By the way, how many times did Jesus command 
his disciples to forgive someone. Uh, the, the question was, well, should I forgive someone seven times? No, he says 70 times seven, and the point wasn't 490. Don't do the math. The point was, don't keep track. Because that's how God doesn't keep track of our sins. When God forgives, he does so permanently. He pours his love on you when you confess your sins. Not because you deserve it, but because your sin is paid in full by Jesus, and he loves Jesus. It is this very fact that Jesus paid for my sins that enables me to respond graciously to you when you confess your sins. In fact, any, any believer who would take your confession of sin as a weapon to beat you down is a believer who has seemingly forgotten the severity of their own sin. He has forgotten what he has been forgiven and by using it against someone else, by taking someone's confession and using it against them, that person now has another sin to confess himself. Because we are called to forgive as we have been forgiven. Verse six, we are to seek God. Verse seven, turn to God. He forgives. Verses eight and nine, we are called to know God. And here's what we learn about him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I want to fully understand God. I echo, echo the sentiments of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know my God, so I study his book so I can know him more. I don't just read parts of it daily. I meditate on some passages. I work on memorizing some key verses. I mull over what other people have learned about God and have shared through various media. Yet I will never fully comprehend God. Thank you for that, amen. Because if God were within the realm of any human fully understanding, then he would not be much of a God. Because if I, as a finite being, could understand God, then he would have to be a finite being. Not only would he have to be less than infinite, he would have to be less than me. And if I can understand God, then I'm actually God. Right? The processes of God's thinking are eternally greater than ours. Think of how much more complicated it is to construct a Boeing 747 jet airliner, the queen of the skies. How much more complicated that airplane is than one my son can make with a piece of paper and throw at you. Now there are mathematicians that could give you an order of magnitude to that comparison. 
comparison God is making is that this is an eternal comparison. There is no comparison. Verse 9 tries to measure it. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. How high are the heavens? In 1977, NASA launched the space probe Voyager 1. Amazingly, it's been working ever since. Traveling as far as, as it can go, hurled out into space. It took 35 years just to get out of our solar system. Our solar system is, is our sun and the planets and things that used to be called planets but aren't anymore. Poor Pluto. Anyway, just to get out of our solar system, not to approach another one. At the rate it's going, in about 40,000 years, it will come close to another star. <laughs> I don't plan to be here for that one, at least not in this body. Um, in the new one, sure. Um, now, you don't need to live in the space age to understand Isaiah's point. God's ways are infinitely higher than our ways. His thoughts are infinitely greater than our thoughts. The atheist, the one who rejects the notion that there, that there exists a God, would look at the obvious brokenness of our world and call it evidence, proof that there is no God. How can there be a God when we see wars and disease and cruelty like we see? But in doing so, the atheist has established himself as the authority of what is true and what is right. So the atheist cannot conceive how the apparent evil of this world can possibly be governed by a powerful and loving God. For if there's a God who is all powerful, powerful but allows such evil to go on, he must not be loving, the atheist would conclude. Or if there's a God who is loving but is incapable of stopping the evil, then he must not be all-powerful. You've perhaps heard those lines of argument. It's pretty common, actually. While it is 100% true that we cannot understand, understand God's thoughts and his ways, the Bible does reveal some helpful details about God. First of all, in man's reasoning, God must be loving and kind above all. In our reasoning, God must be kind and loving. We hold that virtue as the highest. And so anything that results in pain or loss or unfairness must not be the result of love. But here's what scripture says. Romans 5.8, God shows us his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that verse, love equals the killing of the God-man, Jesus. Another familiar verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The extent of God's love is this. He gave his son, and we know to what end, to die, to bear our sin, to be separated from the Father for all of eternity past, which, by the way, 
God's eternal, does he really have a past? Past and future, that's kind of a linear thing, but God is not linear. Anyway, all of eternity past, God the Father, God the Son have been united. But because of our sin, they were separated. Scripture says that the Father turned his back on the Son as he was bearing our sins on the cross. Love for us meant death for the Son. So the atheist who concludes that God does not exist because suffering does, it's more evidence that man does not understand God. Because God is not love first and foremost. He is holy first and foremost. He is good. And in his love, he allows suffering. He brings about suffering. I don't have to understand it to trust him. Scripture gives me enough to understand him enough that I can trust him even though I don't always understand why these things happen. God has revealed more than enough of himself so that we who walk by faith in him can have restful confidence in the character and wisdom of God even when we don't understand the circumstances. Our overwhelming response to to today's text should be, what an awesome God we have. Seek the Lord. He's available. Turn from your sin. Return to the Lord. Isaiah was written long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The faithful ones of Israel understood that the Messiah had been promised, but he hadn't come yet. That promise created a longing, a deep, aching desire for the the promise of the Messiah to to be true, to be revealed, to to actually happen. The Messiah has come. We remember it through songs. We remember it through reading various passages of scripture around Christmas time. The Messiah has come. And his death brought us life. And because he rose from the dead and later ascended into heaven, we have great confidence that he, the Messiah, will come again. Because it's been promised. And so therefore we, much like the Israelites of old in Isaiah's day, also have a deep-seated longing for the promise of the return of the Messiah to take place. I don't know how God wants to use this in your life today. Maybe it's to just bring about a spark of joy about the great God we have. Or maybe it's going to bring about some sorrow for sin that you've been harboring. Maybe it just is going to amplify that ongoing aching for the Lord to return. Or any other number of responses, I don't know. I do know this. 
our God is greater than we can imagine. And he wants us to humble ourselves, surrender to him in everything that we do. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to seek you in everything that we do. Father, I'm afraid we run on autopilot all too often. We just do stuff. Help us to seek you in everything that we do. Help us to turn away from our sin and return back to following you for those of us who are believers. For those who are unsaved, Lord, I pray that you would give them understanding today and that they would turn to you for the first time. Turning from their sin and placing their faith and hope in you through Jesus Christ for their salvation, for their eternity. Father, help us to know you better. So Lord, take that knowledge of of who you are, that knowledge that we have, that, that you are higher, that you are greater, that your wisdom is far beyond anything that we could comprehend and, and use those truths in our hearts to help us trust you, to help us rest in you. Help us to have our hearts focused on you today. It's, it's very easy for us in this time of year where our hearts are supposed to be focused on you because we remember the birth of our Savior, yet our hearts get distracted with all sorts of activities and family get-togethers and, and other relationships and other, other things that we're doing that in and of themselves are perfectly fine, but Lord, help us to not be distracted from you in those good things. Help us to make you our primary focus. Help us to set you as our highest affection, our greatest love, so that we might grow to be more humble, so that we might grow to be more like our Savior. Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture for all the ways that it can impact us, Lord, I pray that you would continue to use it in our hearts, use it in our lives throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.